So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with experts in the trenches at the forefront of consulting, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On this episode, we're joined by Deb Zahn, who is the CEO of Crafter Consulting, through through which she helps new and aspiring consultants start, build and grow their consulting businesses. Uh, Crafter Consulting, Consulting is also the name of her podcast, which she hosts, uh, where she and other consult- successful consultants share their strategies and insights for building successful practices. And one of the things I really like about this interview today is that uh, she's someone who also practices what she preaches. Um, so she's yeah, a practicing consultant herself with, with 12 years of experience. And prior to operating as an independent, Debs was also um, a principal at a uh, consulting firm as well. So Debs, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Ah, Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. And so Debs, um, as we were saying earlier, I know you've probably got, you know, hundreds of different sort of tips or tools or strategies or things for consultants uh, that you could share. But is there one that particularly comes to mind that you'd like to share with our audience today? Yes, I would. And I did I did actually pick one and I actually thought about where do I see most consultants get tripped up? Not just by the way at the beginning, but if you know they aren't getting sort of the steady flow of business they want. And it's usually always the same thing, which is focus and clarity. And I, I want to get very specific about what I mean by that, which is if they have not yet written down or typed into a computer the specifics of who they want to serve. You can call it your ideal client, call it your avatar, call it your client soulmate. I don't care, but you've written down who they are, what they care about, where they are, and then what value you can bring to them, your value proposition. If that's not on a piece of paper somewhere that you've looked at carefully and that's guiding your business, it's going to be harder to get clients and it's going to be harder to serve them well when you do get them because what often happens is it ends up being a, oh, I can be anything to everyone. <laughs> and that's not true. No one believes that. Clients don't understand it when you say that. And you might end up doing work that you're not really well suited to do, which means you're not going to do it very well. And ultimately, that's going to sort of get in the way of you magnetically being able to draw people to your business because you have such a good reputation for helping clients achieve results. So I skipped this when I first started 12 years ago because no one told me I had to do it. (laughs) And I wasted months, frustrating months because I hadn't sat down and done that work. So then I knew Who should I go talk to? What should I say to them that they're actually going to care about? What do I think that they have a demand for? Something that they're actually willing to pay to solve? Why would they pick me over someone else? Everything flows from that. And I wish someone had told me that at the beginning. And so I got to tell people that now. Yeah, interesting. And what about people that you, maybe you've come across this where they might have experience in lots of different industries. Maybe they've done some some projects in pharmaceutical and some telecoms and some in lots of different areas. Is there anything like, you know, do we, do we look at maybe it's the commonalities between the people that they serve? Because there are some commonalities, maybe they're larger organizations of a certain size, or they're tackling a certain type of problem. Is that something that you, you tend to find works or... Yeah, you can slice it any way that gives you clarity. So for example, if somebody showed up and they said, look, I've done all of this work across various types of industries, 
So I can't really pick a market or a niche. My point would be you can, but you still have to answer questions. So who are you dealing with? Are you talking to the CEO? Are you talking to the HR director? Are you talking to the CFO? You should know that because they all care about different things and they would change your approach to who you're going to go talk to and what you're going to go say to them and what type of business you can do for them. So even getting clarity on, okay, if it's across industries and and that's how I want to do it. Like I had someone on my podcast who realized that her niche was people and it didn't matter what type of industry, but here's the specific value she offered at this level with these people within those industries. So that when she went out, she was more clearly able to articulate it, even though she wasn't like me able to say, oh, I'm in healthcare in the US. And by the way, me saying I'm in healthcare in the US is meaningless <laughs> when I'm going out to the market because that's a vast industry. So I niched down because I needed a place to start. I'm not stuck within that niche. I do tons of work outside of that niche, but at the beginning it was easier because then I was able to say, okay, at least I know what to do today. <laughs> and maybe yeah. six months from now I'll be doing something different, but now I've I've got enough focus that I need I know what to go do. And I had to decide, is it the CEOs I'm talking to? My answer was yes. Okay, that's even narrowed further who I'm going to go talk to and what they care about. And everything got easier after that. But whatever decisions you can make within what your reality is, that's going to make everything you do after that much easier. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm curious, what, what did your, your process of gaining that extra clarity, what, it, what did it look like? Was it a question of just really going out and speaking to people that you were previously working with? Was it, well, I'm curious, what, that, what was that process of investigation like? Yeah, it was way more embarrassing than that. It, <laughs> it was. So it was, I went out before I had that clarity and I met with tons of people, pretty much anybody I knew. And we had lovely conversations. I never got any business, but we had lovely conversations. They liked me. They thought I was smart. They thought I did good things. So I start. I stopped because it was very frustrating after several months of doing that. And I thought about, okay, wait a minute. What have I done previously? that has actually achieved results, or I contribute to achieving results that still matter, <laughs> still matter with all the people I'm going and talking to. And then I started honing it down from there. So I actually, because I didn't, at that time, you know, there weren't podcasts, there was probably books, I didn't know about them, there weren't other, you know, resources, social media was like, a thing, but not a big thing. So I didn't have a lot of places to go. So I kind of worked backwards. And I thought, if what they ultimately want to buy is results, then what results have I actually achieved? What do I enjoy doing? <laughs> because I tell, it's great if I achieved a result, but if it was painful and I don't want to do that ever again, then I can cross that off the list. And then I started to ask questions about um, who cares about that. And I realized that some of the things that I was able to do and I could point to results, that's what CEOs cared about. That's not what other people in the organization were necessarily going home and having sleepless nights about. And, and then I narrowed it down very specifically to where I had experience. So there was a particular sector within the healthcare market that I had a lot of experience with and I had a lot of personal context with. So I knew, one, very practically, 
if I, if I called, most people would actually meet with me. And, and very practically, meetings are where the magic happens. So I knew I had to get into meetings. So I thought, who's actually going to meet with me? And who might meet with me again, since I already took them out for drinks? And then I thought about the type of experience that mattered to them. And what mattered to that particular sector was having experience in that sector. So I basically looked at my background and dissected it and started organizing it until I had enough clarity. So when I started reaching out to folks again, so the first client I ever got, I think I had met with her three or four times before that. And we adored each other and we had experience uh, of actually doing some work together. And it wasn't until I was very clear, here's the thing she cares about. It's not about me. It's not about my resume. It's about me being able to talk to her about results that I could help her achieve that she had good reason to care about. And so that's how I sort of reverse engineered it and thought, what's going to give me credibility and depth of knowledge and ease of speaking when I go out into the market? Yeah, I love that. And I'm I'm curious, like, as your career has progressed, are there are there certain influences that you you can point to that really had an impact? Maybe it was a body of work, maybe it was an author, maybe it was, you know, podcasts you've been listening to all this time. Is there anything that that pops out for you? So I I, I got to give love to my husband on this because oh, yeah? he had yeah, he had been a consultant. He had been a consultant I think for about 7-8 years. And I am not encouraging anybody to do what he did, but he never marketed. He never did any business development. And he had a steady stream of work the entire time. So there were two things that were particularly helpful about knowing another consultant. And of course, being married to one was even more helpful is two things. One is he got a lot of input from clients. So I got to hear about what they liked what they didn't like, what they liked that they found different about him. So I heard things like, we're so sick of cookie cutter consultants coming in and pulling something off the shelf and trying to you know, make it work for us as opposed to deeply listening to us, understanding who we are, what we care about, and then finding the thing that is going to be most helpful to us. So I got to hear things like that that were essentially coming straight from clients. So it, it helped dispel the, this is what a consultant is set of assumptions that I thought, oh, I had to construct all these models or very you know specific things that I could replicate. Now I have some of those now, but I always customize them because everybody is different, but I got to hear very clearly. And I remember one in particular where they didn't want to be treated as generic client because they didn't experience themselves as generic client. They didn't think their problems were generic. They didn't think their aspirations were generic. And to be treated like that by a consultant coming in drove them crazy (laughs) and, and would make them not want to hire them. So I got insights just by him coming home and telling me these are things that I heard today. And, and, you know, people would go on rants about consultants and I got to hear what they said when they did it. So that was tremendously helpful. And, and if you know people who have actually hired consultants before I had hired consultants before I became one, they're the best people to talk to because they will tell you without hesitation what they liked and what they didn't like. And um, particularly if you're out for drinks, you're going to hear a lot (laughs) in terms of what they'll tell you. But the second thing he did, and I got to give him uh, a lot of credit for this, is 
you know, typically in the work world, I'm a very confident person. But when you become a consultant and suddenly you have to do things that you've never had to do before, like get clients, have conversations about price, like all of these things that as confident as I was in what I had done historically in my job, I'd never had to do. My confidence took a bit of a dive. So I couldn't imagine how I was going to get clients. And then once I figured it out and I started to get clients, you know, I had originally complained to him, oh, I have no idea how I'm going to get clients. And then at a certain point, I had some, I had more than what I knew what to do with, and I was way too busy. And I said back to him, I don't know how I have so many clients. And as any good partner would do, he repeated back to me what I said with a little mocking and said, you see, I told you that this was going to work out. And I think that's what's hard when a lot of consultants start is you got to have people in your corner who aren't just helping you make decisions and show you the way and things like that, but also who can say to you, don't worry about it. You've done good things. It's not a question of if, it's a question of how. And I had someone in my corner doing that for me. And it's really hard if folks don't have that. Yeah, absolutely. So very interesting what you say about, um, you know, having that view from the other side of the table of people saying, oh, you know, all these consultants there, <laughs> you know, and having this sort of negative viewpoint from, you know, but actually hearing it from the the horse's mouth to speak. That's right. Um, but sometimes actually the, the role of the consultant is sometimes also to actually have someone to blame. Like, you know, if McKinsey said True. we should have done this and it went wrong, then you can just say, oh, it's all McKinsey's fault. You know? That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And that does indeed happen. Uh, and if consultants aren't carefully cultivating the relationship, they, they can make it easy for that to happen. If they're doing things like, you know, one thing that I talk about all the time is perceived value and perceived value is different than actual value. So you might be doing wonderful and fabulous things. If the client doesn't see it, hear it, or experience it, then that might not ultimately mean much. And so part of what I think consultants do particularly to keep engagements and get repeat and referred business is to never leave that to chance. And I don't mean tooting your horn like, hey, did you look at this fabulous thing I did for you today? (laughs) But instead, to carefully construct opportunities for them to hear about here are the things that are working, here are the things that we've achieved, you know, strategy sessions that build off of those good things and not assume just because you're doing a fabulous job that they know about it. Yeah. That can be a sometimes it can that can be a tricky thing to uh to achieve though, because I'm thinking about so there's someone that we've had on the podcast before and he's written a lot about working with the company's culture and their their grain of their culture. And there are some things, you know, when you come in as a consultant, you say, okay, we're gonna do all this, but there are only some things that are easy to do because they go with the company's culture. But then there are certain things that, you know, there is some change that needs to be made, but oh, yeah. it's, it's there's going to be a lot of friction there. And so one of the ways he talks about going about that is those, those are, so that's a longer term play. You have to kind of seed little ideas and you have to let other people take ownership of your own ideas and present them as their own yes. to basically get stakeholders on your own side. But at the same time, like you say, it's also a question of actually having the re- work you're doing recognized. So that's kind of a, a an interesting balance to kind of, kind of strike, isn't it? 
Yeah, that is that is where you sort of get to the Jedi level of being able to do both of those things at the same time. Because, yeah, yeah, when I go in and part of it is just my nature, but I also don't think it's a good business strategy is I don't want to have the client think that I think that were it not for me, (laughs) you would be failing and you wouldn't be accomplishing anything. But I do think there are ways and particularly, and it depends on who you're engaging with. I have a little bit easier time because I always engage with the CEOs, but to be able to, to talk to them about strategy and say, this is a longer play. This is going to be harder to do because it's very different than your culture. We need to build in some things that make people feel successful and like this path is worthy early on. And that's a strategy. So let's figure out how to do that together. And then for the longer term, they don't have to wait until the very end before something good happens and they actually believe you. They've experienced something that that feels good. But to be able to talk with, with who you're working with about the people strategy and the culture strategy and not just you know, the systems and the work itself, but ha- but to help them understand that it's all part of the same thing. And some folks are really, really open to that. And some folks, it's more challenging. I used to live in, in California in the United States, and the culture in California is really different in New York, where I currently live. And so the joke was when I was in California, my job was to say, okay, okay, yes, we've processed enough. We've asked a lot of questions. What we really need to do is just do something right now, because it tended to be a culture of where, of, of spending a lot of time with, with the strategy. I come to New York and that is out the window. It is ready, fire, aim. And so my job in New York was to say, ho, 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 before we do anything, let's just stop and have a strategy. And so I came to New York and they suddenly thought I was this process person. I was in California and they thought I was just this, you know, driver trying to make them do things. And so you have to understand you know, that that's where there were obviously regional differences, but even within organizations, there are differences. That's why the soft people and culture and, and those types of skills, I don't care what type of consultant you are, the more knowledge you have of those, the more successful you're going to be because you're going to be able to not just navigate them, but understand them enough that you do things differently to get a better outcome. It, you can be fantastic at, I understand how this technical aspect works, but unless you're doing something where no human beings are involved, you got to understand the human side of it. Yeah. I, uh, that reminds me of a time where I, I once worked with a project manager who was also an independent and he was brought in and he hardly, like, he wasn't that great at using a computer. He tended to type very slowly and he could hardly use a spreadsheet, but he knew every single person in the company and he knew, he knew at a high level how everything worked and he was completely indispensable. He, you know, it was in a, in a company where everything was quite siloed. So he was basically just able to be that person who would glue different divisions together. And he just, he was able to make things happen that no one else was capable of. I have, I have made my living as a consultant largely because of those abilities. So one of the things I often do as a consultant is, you know, a bunch of CEOs from different organizations, similar organizations will come together and they want to form some type of a new legal entity. And they've, you know, we got the lawyers there. So the lawyers know how to do the lawyer stuff. 
And, and I know enough about what they're trying to do that I understand the technical aspect of it. But you got a bunch of CEOs sitting around the table trying to make decisions together is really tough to do. So the joke is I cure decision-making disorders, particularly among groups. And that's all the people stuff. I have to listen carefully. I have to know the technical side of it enough in order to guide the conversation appropriately. But I have to be able to look out of the corner of my eye and see, oh, she's she's not liking this. Or look at the corner of my eye and say, hang on, I think we've got something here we could agree on. And those are all of those skills that I've built an entire career on. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've heard quite a lot, uh, you know, uh, so far, we've heard a lot about, you know, the consulting work that you do um, and, and your career. But I'm curious about also the people that you work with. I'd love it if you could maybe, um, you know, tell tell us a story of maybe someone who's been through some one of your programs, um, like an interesting case study, uh, if there's if there's one that comes to mind. There is one that comes to mind. So uh, this was someone named Gwen who had been in her field uh, probably 15 plus years. So, you know, very good, but, you know, she had worked in lots of, of organizations and companies and she really wanted the independence and she wanted to, to do her own thing, but she didn't have a ton of confidence. And so I started working with her. This was someone I was coaching and, you know, we got through a lot of the details about what she ultimately wanted to do in that focus and clarity. But when we came to pricing, that's when all of the you know insecurities just came bubbling up to the surface because now you're putting a price tag on what you did and it's not a salary, so it's really different and it felt uncomfortable. And I remember we were on a coaching call and we and and she was in a market that I actually knew well enough to you know help her figure out not just how to price like a pricing model that isn't hourly, but also you know how to to think through some of the pricing. And it was about four o'clock in the evening. She went to bed later that evening, woke up and lowered her price. <laughs> and I talked to her, I said, hang on, I know nothing changed in the market. So what happened there? And, and it was a lot of the stuff around confidence and other mindset issues. So we worked through that. The, the real big success is her first negotiation with a prospective client. And she decided right out of the gate to use a value-based um, pricing model. And it was a little easier to do with them because they had a particular you know, increase in revenue that they were looking at. And I helped her work through what the proposal would look like, how to deal with objections, et cetera, et cetera. And she had wanted to come in at, I think, 40000 and it was going to be a single price. And I said, yeah, yeah, but they said they were interested in all this other stuff. So what if we did a tiered pricing model, give them three tiers because it matches what they said. It's not just a gimmick. It actually matches what they said. And so we had the bottom at 50 and we had the top at 125,000 and they went for the 125,000. This was her third week as a consultant. So Mm. you can imagine this. and, And actually within two months, it went up even further because they added a retainer. But you know, this was someone who couldn't have imagined that someone was going to pay her. And next thing you know, she had a client going for the top tier. Yeah, quite the turnaround, right? From going, <laughs> I'm just imagining what, what you must have been feeling after you spoke to her and then she put her prices yeah. down. You're like, no, <laughs> it's supposed to be the other way around. <laughs> yeah, you know, I got it. I'd been through that. You know, I, I was lucky that I worked at a firm and they didn't let me say a different price. 
um, at the time. And so that, thank goodness they didn't because I would have artificially lowered it. And so I think for her, that was enormously helpful to see so soon into consulting that not only are people willing to pay for the value of what she's providing, but they're willing to pay for the maximum amount of value she could give them. Yeah. Always good to have like a, you know, all the whistles option. Yes. Yes. And you've, that pricing is something that you have, you know, you, you've spoken about, you've seen, you've, you've written about as well, um, because there isn't, I, I think a lot of the time, uh, you know, a lot of us going into consulting for the first time, we might have maybe a slightly basic understanding of what the pricing should be. But from what I've seen, what you've, you shared, like there are actually lots of different ways of thinking about it, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there are. And I think what people do is they tend to default to hourly pricing because they think, oh, consultants, that's what we do. We're like lawyers. We You're paying for a unit of our time. Yeah. And the, the problem with that is that you are, your value is so much higher than a unit of time. And I, I like to use the example of when I think back to 12 years ago when I first became a consultant, there are some things I did then that I also do now. Well, now I have more experience. I've seen a lot. <laughs> I tend to be much more efficient at doing it. So back then, something might have taken me three, four hours to do that now, honestly, are going to take me you know, 45 minutes to an hour to do. So with the logic of hourly, I should have been paid more when I was less experienced and had and less expertise than I would be now, which, of course, makes no logical sense. So there, and every type of pricing model has its trade-offs. So, you know, there's hourly, there's a flat fee where essentially you charge a, a, a single flat fee for a particular project. There's value-based, which is where you're really trying to get to what's the value of the outcome for the client, and you're going to build your price off of that. And then there's retainers, which essentially is, um, and there's different versions of them, but essentially you get paid at the beginning of the month for a, a particular scope you're going to do that month. And I, my feeling is you have to know the trade-offs for each one and when does it make sense to apply them or mix them together so that you get the best possible outcome, you get as much predictive revenue as you could get. And by the way, the client also can have a predictive expense, which they tend to like. But I tend towards retainer and value-based. When I first started, it was all hourly. And it didn't take too many times before I realized that you know there's just there's so many detriments to doing it both on the client side because they didn't really know what to expect, and on my side, because there were just too many factors that could have sent it in either direction. And uh, so I largely, at this point, I do retainers and I do value-based. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and um, so Debs, I'd love to also just talk about, you know, your 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 body of work. So obviously you, you've had the podcast. Um, can you tell listeners like how long that's been, that's been going? Sure. So it actually started just a little while ago, a few weeks ago, three years ago. 
So I'm just about three years in, and I think I just hit 70,000 downloads. And here's the wacky thing. It's in 72 countries, which is (laughs) never what I would have imagined. It's mainly the US and then the UK and Australia tend to fight for second place. And then Canada does their best coming in third, although India seems to be overtaking them right now. Um, It's fun to kind of watch how how things change. But yeah, I, I started the podcast three years ago which I just love. And, and then since then have built out other ways that I help people. So I do, you know, more intensive coaching and I do single shot coaching. So if somebody's like, I got, I got to figure out this proposal, they can get on with me and I'll help them figure it out. And then recently reopened a pilot membership I'd done. That's now a full fledged membership where people can get my help every single day, figuring out what they need to do to get business and have a good life. Fantastic. And all of this can be found at your website, craftedconsulting.com. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about the the membership as well. Can you tell me how, what, what's, what's that experience like? What is it? I'm guessing it's with a group. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so what I did is I actually started with a small group because I wanted to see what it was like and I wanted to see what they would like and what I would like. And so generally how it works is we've got a terrific group of folks, a bunch of people just also joined. And what happens is it's a very personalized experience. So, you know, people come on, they get to ask questions if they ask a question. So, for example, you know, someone said um, recently, you know, I've got a, a potential client meeting set up. They'd reached out to me, but they didn't say anything about what they might want. So I'm going in with no you know, knowledge about what they might want, how do I handle that? And so what they get back is they often get a personalized video from me. So this is where I know on one of your other podcasts, someone talked about Loom. I will give a shout out for Loom, which is very helpful. I'll record a quick video. Everyone understands that I prioritize speed over what my hair looks like. So, <laughs> so they will get a video back usually pretty quickly that helps them think through that. If I have a tool that helps them, if I have a template that helps them, and sometimes we'll even have a back and forth until ultimately they get they get what they need. And, or I'll give them, you know, written feedback. Other members will jump in with their own experience and things that have worked or not worked with them. And then I've got monthly Uh, ask me anything calls where people get on, they can get group coaching, ask me anything they want. And then I do monthly trainings and occasionally I do pop-up training. So if I'm in the membership and I see, uh, this seems to be something people are struggling with. Let me do a quick training on that so we can get down to the basics so folks can actually do what they need to do. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm sure it's an invaluable resource for, you know, independence, especially when you're trying to figure out all this stuff, having a group with you. And having that support is uh, is extremely valuable. Yeah. And it's also what people tell me is they also like the camaraderie. So we've got, you know, folks in there who are the extroverts who really love the engagement with each other. We have some folks who pop in every now and then they're like me, they're the introverts. <laughs> and yeah. So there's something for everyone. And the idea is, the idea is, you know, the membership is a tool to get you results and do it the way you want to do it. And so far people are really enjoying interacting with each other. Fantastic. Great. Um, and, and finally here, Debs, as, uh, as we start to wrap up, can you tell people where they can connect with you online? Uh, which I'm guessing LinkedIn is probably a good place. 
<laughs> I LinkedIn is actually LinkedIn and YouTube are the only places that I currently do social media. So on LinkedIn, you can actually look at DebraZahn.com or Craft of Consulting. You'll find me. And then um, I am on YouTube at Craft of Consulting. But really, if you go to my website, CraftofConsulting.com, you find everything there, and including links to my social. And I got a whole bunch of free tools. So if you have a prospective client meeting coming up, I got a free tool that's a checklist on how to prepare for it so that you're more likely to wow it. All kinds of good stuff on there. Excellent. Well, Debs, um, you know, thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything with us. Uh, you know, all your resources and, and everything you do are just really helpful for the consulting community. So I've got nothing to say, but thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. This has been delightful. All right. Cheers. <laughs>